yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's good stuff. Let's go to the Lord and pray and ask him for his help as we look to his word. Please join me. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning as people who are desperate for you. We are desperate for you to come and work and move by your spirit now. We are desperate for your mercy that you show us in Christ. We are desperate for your grace. We pray that you would give it in abundance as we now look to your word. Our Father, we pray that you would remove every distraction. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what is true and good. Give us ears to hear. We pray that you would work in our hearts that we might rejoice over what's in your word and that we might be given hope and encouragement and strength and faith as we sit under your truth. And we pray for all of these things because it's good for us and because we know these things honor you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, the local church requires investment. The local church requires investment. That is especially true in a church like ours. We are in the early years of CBC's life. We are anything but an established church, like big building, a bunch of programs, the kind of well-built, highly refined machine that you can just sort of come and plug into. We are not that. Amen, somebody. You know that that's true. I know that that's true. In the early years of a church's life, people have to be willing to forego even good things for a season. I don't know if you've thought about it like that before, but you do. To be a part of a church like this, in these early years, you have to be willing to forego even good things for a season. There is real sacrifice in being a part of seeing a church get started and seeing a church be established. Just very personally, from me to you, from the elders to you, and I think I say this just as a member here, thank you to each of you for the investment that you make in this congregation. That means an investment that you're making in each other. We need one another, and I think, I think we know that here, and I'm grateful for that reality. We talk a lot here at CBC about intentionally investing in the church and about intentionally investing in relationships. We'll talk about that. We're a relationship-driven church. It's necessary that we would be intentional, right? Amen. It's, to some degree, on us as individuals what we, quote-unquote, get out of the church. So a lot of times in the church culture, you hear people say things like, well, I just didn't feel you know, drawn in to the congregation. And there's some legitimacy to that kind of feeling sometimes. But the question also needs to be asked, well, what did you do yourself? to get involved? What did you do to make connections if you feel disconnected somehow? It does require effort. Now with all that said, I just wanted to kind of chalk the field with that. It's important that we would understand what's going on here on the Lord's Day when we get together. What is it that we've come to do? That might not even be the right way to phrase it. We come to a service like this out of need. Are we told to do this? Yes. But why does God tell us to do this? We come because we need this. And we come for rest. We come for rest. We come for freedom. So we, I mentioned this sort of off the cuff a couple of weeks ago. There were a number of churches that canceled services around the holidays to give people a break to give their volunteers a rest because everything had been, you know, a lot of production, a lot of effort, a lot of volunteer hours, and people were tired. So we're going to cancel services on the Lord's Day. The irony of that, from my perspective, is that this, the, the gathering on the Lord's Day, is precisely where we come to uniquely find rest. We come 
to have Jesus Christ held out to us. We come to be encouraged to rest in his righteousness, his merit, his life in our place, his atoning death in our place. That is real rest and real freedom. And this is where that ultimately and primarily happens in the lives of believers. The Lord has told us to do this for a reason. We have the Lord Jesus held out to us every week in the Lord's table as well, where we come not because we performed well, but because we know we need Christ. And so we come in faith to partake of the bread and the wine. God is glorified in our worship. So let's get this straight. Like when we come here, so we make sure that we're thinking well together. We don't come to bring something to God that he needs. Like you bring your nothing. You bring your nothing. You don't bring God something that he needs in this time. Now, that does not mean that he isn't glorified in this. He is. He is glorified in our worship, no doubt, but not because of what you are giving him necessarily. He is glorified when we come with a posture of God, we need you. He is glorified when we come with a posture of desperation and utter dependence upon him. When that is in our minds and in our hearts, the Lord is honored very much. When we sing and we pray, thank you for what you have done in your son. I could never do anything and you've done it all. Praise be to your name. He is honored in that. When we come for our good and our joy and for our rest to a service like this, God is honored in that. Because we are acknowledging in a very real way our dependence upon him and our need for him. And so with all of that said, I know that it's hard sometimes to get the crew up and get everybody here on the Lord's Day. But it is our aim as the pastors of this church to serve you, to be used of God, to serve you in this time. It is called a service, after all. I hope that when you come, that by God's Spirit and by His grace, that you come to rest and you come to find joy and real freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ because you will find it nowhere else. And with all of that said, now let's look to God's word. Enough from me. Let's look to the Bible. I need God's word, and so do you. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Psalm 130. This is my last opportunity in the Psalm series to say this, as Ron said so eloquently one time earlier in the Psalms. He said, if you're having trouble finding Psalm 130, it comes after Psalm 129 and before 131. So there we go. Now that you've had just a moment to flip there, I will read God's word for us. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have three points for us today. I realize that I've done this more lately than I usually do. The good Baptist thing, three points. Point number one, we'll take them one at a time. We'll call this one our state. Point number one, our state or our condition, you might say. And we'll be looking at verses one and two as we think about this together. Our state, just to go ahead and lay my cards out on the table, is a state of sin and a state thereby of pain and suffering. Let's look at verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Those depths, I think we should see as primarily talking about the depths of sin. Now, 
Is suffering and pain included in that? Absolutely. So when we'll talk about the depths of woe, the depths of despair, absolutely there is mental, physical, emotional anguish involved in it. But that depth, that darkness begins and flows out of sin. We'll think more about this in our time together. This is clear from the rest of the psalm that when he talks about, the psalmist does, when he talks about the depths that he feels himself to be in, where he finds himself, he has sin in mind. If you look at the rest of the verses in front of you, you see that the psalmist is wrestling with the reality of his iniquity. He's wrestling with the reality of the iniquity of the people as well. Verse 3 makes that very plain. Out of the depths I cry to you, hear my cries for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? We are in the depths of sin and darkness, and thereby we find ourselves in the midst of pain and horrible suffering. One flows out of the other, in other words. The psalmist understands that he and the people are in need of forgiveness and mercy and redemption. And those are the major themes of the rest of the psalm. So I want us to consider for just a moment what the psalmist is talking about in finding himself in the depths of sin and pain. This is real. It's one of the things I love about God's word. I trust you do too. Is that it's not silent on these things. Because our lives and our experience are often quite hard. There are really good things and there are really hard things. So friends, real talk. Our own sin, the sins that you commit, whether that is in deed or thought, motivation, desire, action, whatever. Our own sin breaks our hearts often. We're grieved by it. And our own sin brings pain and suffering upon us in all kinds of ways. Martin Luther once made the observation that the greeting and the salutation in so many of the New Testament epistles is grace and peace to you. Grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, we need both of those things. We need grace because we're sinners. And we need peace because we have troubled consciences. Because our sin racks our brains and our minds and our hearts. They're wrenched by sin. We know full well what's going on in here. And it troubles the believer. Our consciences are burdened all the time, if we're honest. We know the truth about ourselves. We are not pure, far from it. We fail regularly. And so we are grieved by that failure. And then our sin, as we continue to struggle with points. It brings wreckage and difficulty and pain of all kinds into our lives, and not only our lives individually, but also thereby into the lives of everyone who knows us, especially the people closest to us. It's horrible to be grieved by your own sin for your own sake, but then when you look at what your sin does to another person you love, that is equally, if not even more so, heartbreaking. Out of the depths, I cry to you. I'm a sinner. In addition, though, to your own sin and what goes on in your own heart, mind, and what you do that is wicked, there are other people on this planet besides you. Other people break your heart. They hurt you. This is because, no shock, they are sinners too. So even when we mean well, you know this, I know this, even when we mean well, intentions are good, we still wound each other. We still hurt each other, let alone the times when we're just consumed with our own interests and other people are kind of over here off the front burner. Sin produces all kinds of relational strife and it's hard. But then also, in thinking about crying to God from the depths. Well, what else is there in the depths besides my own sin and the sin of other people? Well, there are bad things, objectively bad things that happen to us as a result of living in a world that's fallen. Everybody in this room, maybe this week, maybe it's the past year, but certainly in relatively recent memory can remember something that happened to you 
that you had no control over, that changed your life, that was incredibly difficult. Things happen in a world that's fallen, and they are often heartbreaking. We can't always, as we've talked about before, we can't always draw a straight line from our sin to particular suffering. There is suffering that sin brings. We've already been considering that. Sin brings ruin and suffering. And then sometimes, because we live in a Genesis 3 world, bad things will happen to us because the world along with us is in a state of sin. And there are all kinds of pain that we experience as a result of just living in a world like this. So when I read the Bible, and we listen even to the psalmist, when he says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice, please. It becomes pretty clear, at least from my perspective, you could wrestle with this on your own, that there is a general lack of awareness of sin in our current church context. There's a general lack of awareness of sin in our current church context. Let me explain what I mean. What I mean by saying there's a lack of an awareness of it is that our thoughts of sin are far too small. Our thoughts about sin are too small. We talk about sin in evangelicalism, and just again to be really clear, when I say evangelicalism, I mean like Western conservative Bible-believing Christianity, right? People of the gospel. In evangelicalism, we talk a lot about sin. No argument about that. But I don't know that we often, in our discussions of sin, really see it for what it is and see it for all that it is. Because most of our conversation in the evangelical world about sin has to do with morality. It has to do with things that you do. It has to do with things that you don't do. Right? It has to do with behavior, actions, maybe thoughts, right? But that's the realm that most of the conversation about sin lives in. But sin is so much more than that. Sin is so much more, it's so much deeper than just the wrong things we do, or the wrong things we think, or the good things that we don't do, or the good things that we don't want. You guys hear this a lot here, that biblically, to understand the depths and the woe and the despair of the psalmist, we've got to talk robustly and biblically about sin and the fact that we are all born into a state of sin and corruption. We are. We don't come into the world neutral. We don't come into a neutral world. We come into a world that has been put into bondage in hope that it would be redeemed, but it is in bondage now. And we also come into the world in bondage to sin. We have a nature that is bent toward wickedness. The sin and the corruption that we are born into affects every single aspect of our life. So you'll hear a theological term, total depravity. How many in the room participate right now? How many in the room have heard that term before? Total depravity, most everyone. But what that means is that there is not a single aspect of your life, not a single aspect of your existence that is not tainted and marred and corrupted by sin. That's what that total means. Total means total. It means everything has been affected. Now, it's not utter depravity. It doesn't mean that you are as just bad as you could possibly be. That's not what we mean. There's still good in the world. But every aspect of the creation and every aspect of you has been tragically corrupted by sin. So this means that spiritually and intellectually and morally and emotionally and physically, you've been tainted. The world that we live in has been corrupted in every aspect as well. And because of all of these things, we are naturally inclined toward evil. We want things that are not good for us, naturally. We oppose things that are good for us, naturally. And pain and suffering come into our lives as a result. And even for the believer, the presence of sin still remains. We have been delivered from the power of sin. In Christ, we are no longer in bondage to it anymore. Amen. 
But the presence of sin, sin excuse me, still remains. There is still an internal war, the Romans 7 reality of the Christian life. I want to do these things, but I don't find myself doing them. I don't want to do those things, but I find myself doing them anyway. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's our hope. Our thoughts and our desires and our feelings and our deeds are still affected by sin. Sin runs deep. We tend, even, certainly this is true for, for non-believers, right? Because just by definition, apart from the grace of God to see who we really are, how could an unbelieving person think rightly of him or herself? Unbelieving people would naturally think too highly of themselves. We all did, and I would say we all still do. Even in the church, we do. We tend to think way too highly of ourselves. I mean, what is one of the greatest struggles that everybody has? Self-righteousness, right? That in and of itself is exhibit A. That we think too highly of ourselves. We lose sight of how desperate we are. We lose sight so easily of how much we need mercy, how much we need forgiveness, how much we are in desperate need of the grace of God that we would be right with him and that we would ever be changed to be more like his son. We don't produce that. God does that. The Holy Spirit of God does that. And we are desperate for him. So friends, this is why, biblically, this is why you will hear me and other people at this church continually beat the drum that the ground of our hope could never be inside of us. Ever. Ever. I don't care how sanctified you are. I don't care how much fruit there is, fruit of the Spirit in your life, it can never be the ground of your hope. It can be encouragement. Hey, praise God when somebody looks at you and says, brother, sister, I've noticed you're different. Praise the Lord. God gets the credit for that. But even that is meant for our edification. It's meant for our encouragement. It's never meant to be our hope. Our hope has to come outside of us, even for the believer. We are always looking outside of ourselves to Christ for the ground of our hope and assurance. And we are always looking outside of ourselves for righteousness. Our righteousness could never be inside of us because my righteousness is always imperfect. It's real, right? God's working change in you, in me, but it is imperfect righteousness. It doesn't measure up. There's only one righteousness that's perfect and only one righteousness that can be hoped in, and that is the righteousness that only Jesus Christ provides. This is why this stuff matters when we think about the depths that we live in in our world and in our own minds and in our own hearts we therefore cry out with the psalmist verse 2 oh lord hear me please hear my voice let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy be merciful to me it's the posture of a believer from the day that you're converted to the day that you die or Christ returns, the posture of a Christian. Be merciful to me. I don't deserve it. You never will deserve God's favor. It's always mercy. It's always grace. The psalmist is acknowledging in crying out the way that he does, not only the depths of his despair, but the reality that God is his only hope. He's crying out to the only one who he thinks can help him. It's clear. God, you are my only hope. You're the only one who can help me. You are the only one who can comfort me because you are the only one who is in the position to show me the mercy that I need. So on that mercy, let's move into point number two. Point number one was our state. Point number two is our need. Point number two is our need. And we'll be looking at verses three and four. 
The psalmist writes in verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. Answer, no one. No one could stand. The verse speaks for itself. The psalmist clearly gets it. If the Lord was to keep a record of sin, and he were to write down all the iniquity committed, and for that matter, if he were to just keep a record of good deeds and bad ones for every person, who is there who could stand before God in his or her own merit? Nobody. No one. This is why we beat the drum constantly here at CBC of our utter inability to stand before God in our own merit. Because it's impossible. I love you. I trust you love me. I don't want you ever to be confused or deceived into thinking that you could stand in your own merit and your own righteousness before God. You can't. This is because of the fact that God is absolutely and perfectly holy. He is absolutely and perfectly righteous and just. He is not a God who takes sin lightly. He is not a God who is okay with wrong. And it's good that he isn't. It would be terrifying if the God of the universe, the all-sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe, if he was okay with evil, we're all doomed. He's not. He has given his law in his word to tell us, in one sense, what pleases him. He's given us his law to reveal his character. But the first thing that his law does for human beings is it exposes us for who we are. God's law is like a mirror that we would hold up and we would assess ourselves and we see how far short we come. And it drives us to the only one who has ever fulfilled it perfectly. And his name is Jesus. This text is a good verse to come to, Psalm 130 and verse 3. It's a good warning against relativizing God's law, as we are prone to do. We can preach the law of God in such a way that we dumb it down a little bit, just a little bit, so that we actually deceive ourselves into thinking we could do it. We can't do it. We need to remind ourselves regularly that we can't. As the psalmist writes, as Isaiah writes, as Paul picks up on in his letter to the Romans, there is not one righteous person. No, not one. No one does good. No one seeks after God. We all stand condemned in our own merit. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all lawbreakers and therefore deserve the penalty that lawbreakers get. But praise be to the Lord, that's not the end of this psalm and that's not the end of his story, God's story. As has been remarked on by a number of people before me, men much greater than me, one of the greatest words in Scripture often is this contrastive conjunction, but. There is a wonderful but in this psalm. And I realize that I just said that. Anybody wants to laugh at it? It's fine. I thought it through before I said it. Put your eyes on verse 4. We've just been thinking about iniquities and how no one can stand. But with you, there is forgiveness. And you should say, praise God. With you, there is forgiveness. Praise be to the Lord's name. He is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps steadfast love for thousands and forgives iniquity and forgives transgression and forgives sin. That's who he is. And at the same time, as was referenced earlier, he is also the Lord who will by no means clear the guilty. How can both be true? How can you be a God so holy that no one can stand before you and yet you forgive sin? How does this work? Many of you know where we're going and it's good that we would be reminded because it's so easy for us to forget. The way that we can stand before God and the way that he forgives us in righteousness is because our sin really has been punished. The transaction has been made. Our sin is counted to Jesus. When we trust Christ, our sin is counted to him. 
He knew no sin. I think 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a great verse in Scripture. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Holy smokes. Jesus knew no sin, but yet he was made to be sin. Like he really took it on himself. This is not just some hypothetical judicial transaction. This is a real forensic legal thing. Our guilt, our corruption was all heaped upon Christ. And then he really paid for it. Like the debt is canceled. So what is the punishment that lawbreakers deserve? Think even Garden of Eden with God's covenant of works he made with Adam. Do these things, but don't eat of that tree. If you do it, you will surely die. What did Christ do? He did not deserve to die. He had, not, he had done no wrong. He had not sinned. He died for you and me. He paid that real penalty of death under the law in the place of everyone who has ever trusted in him. He was put forward by God, another great theological word, as a propitiation, right? A satisfaction. This means that God's righteous anger against sin was really satisfied in the way that Christ suffered. The wrath of God was poured out on God the Son in the place of all of God's people so that we would not have to bear it. This is the wonders of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. He paid our penalty and is our substitute, and God is now just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. But we would be remiss if we didn't observe the second half of verse 4. Big question. What does the forgiveness of God lead to? What does the forgiveness of God lead to? You see it just like I do. But with you there is forgiveness that, so that, you may be feared. If you could write this down perhaps for the note takers in the room. The forgiveness of God produces the fear of God in the people of God. The forgiveness of God produces the fear of God in the people of God. It's an easy way for me as I was thinking about it this week to just remember that. So when we are aware like the psalmist is aware, I'm living in the depths of sin, I'm encountering pain and suffering of all kinds, I know that ultimately this flows from iniquity. And I know, God, that you are holy and that if you were to write down iniquity and keep track of them, nobody could stand before you. But with you, there's forgiveness. When we are aware of all of those things, it produces what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Let's define our terms a little bit. Fear of the Lord. What does that mean? It doesn't mean fear like I'm afraid of God, like he's going to hurt me. That's not the kind of fear we mean. This kind of fear could be characterized by a number of things. Reverence. Reverence for the Lord. Like, I revere Him. I respect Him. I'm also in awe of Him. Awe. A-W-E, awe, would be a synonym for fear of the Lord. He is so great, so infinitely holy and majestic and good and righteous, I am in awe of him. His grace astonishes me, and I am amazed. Fear of the Lord would also incorporate humility before the Lord. I am not proud. If I am fearing the Lord, I am the opposite of proud. I'm humble. I know who I am. And I know that my standing in him has everything to do with him and not me. I've got nothing to boast in. Fear of the Lord would also incorporate obedience to the commands of the Lord. Forgiveness leads to fear of the Lord, which leads to obedience to the commands of the Lord. Not perfectly. I'm not saying that. Nobody in this room, I think, confuses that. But really, our lives begin to look different. 
Things are changing. We don't look the same as we did five years ago. And if the Lord tarries in 30 years, I pray that we look even more different than we do now. And one day we know that we will be fully transformed and sanctified and conformed into the image of Jesus. It will happen. Progressive sanctification is certain. We know that. So all of these things, fear of the Lord, in your minds be thinking reverence and awe and humility before him and a seriousness about obeying him. Like I'm not just going to take his law, his commands, his law as a guide for my life, right? I'm not just going to say, okay, well, that's one way to do it. No, that's the way to do it. Now, I'm going to fail in it, and that's why his grace is necessary, but I am going to strive after that because I know it's good because God has said it is. And then fear of the Lord will inevitably lead to praise of the Lord. As has been said, right theology, right thinking and study of God always leads to doxology, the praise of God. It's true. It's true. We were talking this morning before the service about the words to the song we just sang, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, and talking about how it's affecting us emotionally. And we rejoiced over that conversation because it's like, yes, I mean, our, our emotions, we hope and pray, would be stirred by truth. Not just by sentimental stuff, but by the truth. Doctrine can stir emotion. Can. Don't ever let anybody tell you it can. We don't need to be all about experiences. Experiences are good. Doctrine stirs emotion in God's economy. So friends, it's important that we would realize this. This matters a lot to me, and you've heard me talk about this before. This verse, verse 4, is a wonderful place to point. Even verse 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is exactly why the charge, the accusation, that to preach free grace and free forgiveness in Christ completely by faith apart from works, the charge that that produces wickedness and lawless living is absurd. It's absolutely whack. The Bible makes it clear. To preach forgiveness, free forgiveness, grace, mercy, completely apart from what you do, completely grounded in what Christ has done, it does not produce lawless people. It produces worshipers. And it produces people who fear God. <clears throat> So I use the word when I'm even making that statement. I use that word free on purpose. Now free does not mean cheap. Don't confuse the two. Think Revelation 21.6 where the Lord says, To the thirsty I give the water of life without payment. I give you the water of life without payment. It's free. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You didn't bring anything for it. I give it to you. It's free. Free is not cheap. The grace and forgiveness given to us is anything but cheap. The cost is unfathomable. We just don't have to pay it. It's what Christ did. All the more reason why it's ridiculous that we would act as though or think in any way that he did not sufficiently complete the work of redemption. He did. He was the only one who could. Out of the depths I cry to you. My situation's bad because of sin and there's suffering and there's pain. God, you're the only one who can help me hear my cry. I know that if you were to keep a record of wrong and sin, I can't stand before you. No, nobody could. But you are a God with whom there's forgiveness so that you might be feared. Point number three, and this is our final one. If number one was our state, number two is our need, point number three is our hope. Point number three, our hope. And we'll be looking at verses five through eight. The psalmist writes in verse five and following, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen. 
for the morning. So the psalmist is quite clear that he waits on the Lord and that he hopes in the word of God. So waiting, let's consider waiting. What does that mean? You hear that language used a lot, wait on the Lord. But when we say that, well, what are we encouraging one another to? Waiting, of course, would imply patience, right? You're waiting because the thing has not happened yet. The thing that you are looking toward or hoping toward or whatever is not reality yet. So there's a waiting and a patience piece that's obvious. <clears throat> this is a comfort to me. The Lord God Almighty knows all things because he planned all things. He doesn't know all things just because he's really smart. His omniscience is not just grounded in omniscience. His omniscience comes from the fact that he has planned everything. He has planned even the free actions of free creatures, and I know that will break your brain. It does mine. There's mystery in that, but it's the witness of Scripture. He has declared the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, declaring my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, not just most, all of it. There is no purpose of God that is thwarted by men, ultimately. Now, he is a God of means, not just ends, right? We could get into that conversation. He ordains the means as well as the ends. And there is mystery there. But it's a comfort to know that God knows all things because he has planned all things, and therefore he is in control of all things. And we know that he is perfect in every way. So that also applies to his timing. We have to wait on things from our perspective, but from God's perspective, it's right. Like, high level. Now, we can overread this a little bit, and I don't want us to do that as a church, where we try to read between the lines of God's providence at every turn. That's not a good exercise. But we can trust that high level at the end of the day, he works all things for our good ultimately, and that he always does what's right. We can trust his character. So, as we live between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming, as we live between, as, as often said, the already the kingdom of God, plan of redemption, it's been inaugurated, but it's not yet been consummated, as we live in the in-between, we appropriately long for deliverance, ultimately. We appropriately long for ultimate rest, final rest, peace. We long for everlasting joy. It's been written into our hearts. God has written eternity into the hearts of men, but in such a way that he cannot understand what God has done from the beginning to the end. Right? So it's good. If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, man, I'm, I'm longing for that deliverance and that final redemption and that everlasting joy and peace and freedom and all these things, I want it so bad. It's appropriate that you do. It will be yours one day. We wait on the Lord to consummate his plan of redemptions when, redemption excuse me, when all things will be made new in an ultimate way, in a way that is everlasting. It will be a great day. And that's what the psalmist is waiting on. It's clear. He's waiting on that ultimate final deliverance. His illustration in terms of how eager he is for it is of watchmen for the morning. Now this is not language that we would normally use. But this would have been a normal experience for people in this era. Cities, you know, back in that time had walls around them for protection, for safety. We don't quite do that now. In part, that's because weaponry has changed and all kinds of things. But back in an era gone by, cities had walls to keep people safe, to keep enemies out. And it was normal for the military, for the guard, to stand watch on the walls of the city, all around them. And they would take shifts to make sure that no enemy was approaching under the cover of darkness in particular. So that night shift was absolutely critical. I'm going to watch and make sure that nothing is happening that's going to jeopardize the safety of my city, my people, my family. And so he's saying, like that watchman up on the wall longs for the sun to rise so that his duty is discharged and we can know night has passed and nothing bad has happened. The way that watchman would have longed for the morning is the way that this psalmist is longing for the deliverance of God. All right, so we've talked about that, that waiting and that anticipation. 
What else does waiting mean, though, in addition to that patience part? I'm just going to offer a few things. This is not exhaustive. Waiting on the Lord not only requires patience, it assumes faith. It assumes faith that you believe him. You believe the promises that he has made. You believe that he is a God who will keep his word and that he is going to deliver on the promises that he's made. It involves waiting on the Lord does. It involves hope, hoping in God. We're hoping for deliverance and we're hoping in God to bring it. It also would include trust, reliance, right? A lot of these words are pretty similar. We're patient. We're exercising faith. We're hoping in God. We're trusting in Him. All of those things would be a part of what it means to wait on God. You see how the psalmist says that he waits for the Lord and in His word I hope. He's hoping in the truth of God, and he's hoping, perhaps even more specifically, in the promises of God. To hope in the word of God is to hope in his truth. It's to hope in his promises that he has given in his word. And this is why, friends, the fundamental battle of the Christian life, if you want to talk ground zero, the fundamental battle of the Christian life always is the battle for faith, the battle for trust. The reason it's hard is that the psalmist, just like us, our experience and what we know to be true are oftentimes at odds with each other. What we know is true is our God is God. He's made these promises. He's going to deliver on them. He's told me I'm his child. He's told me that I'm good with him through Christ by faith. But my experience sometimes says something different to me. I oftentimes in this world feel like I'm driving against the flow of traffic and everything is hard. He tells me that I'm his friend, that I'm his child, but like today, because of either my sin or my circumstances, I feel like his enemy. That's real. That's why it's a fight to believe God. To wait on him requires faith and hope and trust and reliance upon the Lord. And a reminding of, remembering and a calling to mind of the things that we know to be true. A great example of this is the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3 as he is cataloging just the wreckage and the carnage that's going on in the holy city. Mothers have been reduced to cannibalism. They're eating their children. Like what in the world is going on in the city of God? People have been taken into slavery by pagan kings. Nations are ruling over us. What is happening to the covenant promises of God? And what is happening to Zion, the holy city? It's terrible. And then Jeremiah says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Therefore, I will hope in you. So we're talking. This I call to mind. As has been said before too, in the grips of difficulty and suffering and pain, don't ask me what I feel. Ask me what I know. Right? Ask me what I know. Because my feelings deceive me. Let's move on to verses 7 and 8 as we land the plane. The psalmist writes, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He could have just said redemption. It's plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all, not just most, not just many, but all his iniquities. So here the psalmist is exhorting the congregation of Israel to hope in the Lord. Why is that a good idea? He gives us three good reasons at least. One, because with the Lord there's steadfast love. Covenant love that never changes. That's a big deal. He also says, hope in the Lord. It's also a good idea. Secondly, because with him there's plentiful redemption. And thirdly, hope in the Lord because the Lord is a redeemer. He will redeem his people from all their sins. 
In other words, friends, the Lord is trustworthy. He is worthy to be hoped in. This is because of his character, and this is because of what he has done and what he will do. Let's just think about these descriptions of the Lord very briefly. Let's think first of all together about his steadfast love. We can hope in him. We should hope in him because his love is steadfast. He has covenant love for his people. This means that he's unswervingly and unrelentingly committed to his people and their eternal and ultimate good. And the reason that this love never goes anywhere is because this love is not grounded in the lovableness of the beloved. This love is grounded in God himself. This is a Deuteronomy 7 reality. The Lord did not set his love upon you, Israel, because you were great. In fact, you were the smallest of the nations. The Lord loves you because he loves you. Period. He's made promises that he wasn't forced to make at all. He's made many promises of a covenant nature, and he will keep them all. One of the great promises that he has made to his people is the promise of redemption. So let's think about that as well. Because the psalmist tells us that we are to hope in the Lord. He's a God of steadfast love. And with him there's plentiful redemption. So what does that plentiful redemption entail? We've already thought about some aspects of it. It includes certainly rescue from sin and all of its horrific effects, all the depths of woe. Be rescued from that. And it includes deliverance into God's glorious presence in the new heavens and the new earth forever. How will God do this? How will he redeem his people from all of their iniquities? Because there are a lot of them. If we were to just pile up the iniquities of this group of people in this room, it's almost infinite in its scope. And we are but just a pinprick in an ocean of God's people, right? How is this going to happen? We've already considered how none of us can stand before the Lord. We've already thought together about how wonderful it is that Christ took our iniquities on himself and how he paid the penalty that sin deserves and how he took the wrath that we deserve. But this redemption is so plentiful, there's even more to say about it. Not only has our sin been counted to Christ and that been dealt with, his righteousness in turn has been counted to you and to me. You hear this a lot here at CBC, and I'm glad that you do. I'm glad that I do, because I need this. The day that we forget that the righteousness of Christ counted to us as our only hope in life and death, God help us. The great exchange can never be overemphasized. Christ takes your sin, you get his righteousness. It's the greatest deal in the world. This is all part of God's covenant faithfulness. He promised to do these things for his people. We thought about this together on Christmas Eve, and so I'm not going to rehearse all of it, even though I realize many were out of town. But in the chapter of the Bible, into which, in which excuse me, sin enters the world, Genesis chapter 3, lots of horrible things happen. Woe and suffering and death and pain and all kinds of things come into the world. The corruption we thought about came into the human race. But in that same chapter, God makes a promise that he would send a redeemer who would crush the head of the snake. like we thought about together on Christmas Eve, the first Adam, who was our representative, failed to keep God's covenant. And so we fell in him. But then there was a second Adam who came, who fulfilled God's covenant in every way. And we rejoiced together over the reality that everything that we lost in Adam is ours in Christ Jesus. He did more than just pay for our sin. He fulfilled God's covenant of works, the law. He fulfilled it for us. This redemption is plentiful. He's done it all. There is nothing left to do, which is why what we do is a response to what God has done. We stand in reverence and awe and humility, and we praise the Lord. We don't bring things to him. 
to say, hey, I've done this, now save me. It's not how it goes. The Lord, brother and sister, is trustworthy. He has accomplished our redemption. So let's hope in him. That's a takeaway from the song. You want a handle, there it is. You are a sinner, you're far worse than you ever thought. So am I. But with the Lord there is forgiveness. Even though he's holier than you can even conceive him to be, he's a merciful and gracious God who has redeemed you from your sin. He has atoned for your sin. He has given you righteousness in his son, the Lord Jesus. And he is worthy of your trust. This matters that we would know that this is true. One of the greatest words of encouragement that I could ever offer you, the Apostle Paul wrote, we have not been destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is great news. And you need that news because you will, like the psalmist at times, find yourself in the depths. If you're having a good week, that's, that's wonderful. Maybe you're really young and you're on a winning streak of some kind and you think that life is great. Good for you. I hope that continues. There will come a day when life will smack you in the face. Your own sin will break your heart. And circumstances will be outside of your control and you will be in the depths. And what do you have other than this? There will be trials. There will be suffering. There will be heartache. There will be tears. And so, because of this wonderful promise of God, we have hope. And what we do as a church is when people encounter the depths in their lives, we comfort each other. We listen. We say, I'm sorry for what you're going through. Like, that's always good to do, right? Like, rather than immediately having our reaction be, well, let me correct your bad thinking. <clears throat> well, no, maybe compassion is the order of the day. Listen, I'm sorry for what you're going through. We put our arms around each other. We weep together. We charitably, at the right time, maybe correct things that need to be corrected. But more than anything, in the midst of the depths, we point one another to the Redeemer. So when somebody says to me, like, if I'm having the worst day imaginable, and one of you were to say to me, brother, I love you, I'm really sorry, trust Christ, I would say thank you. It's what I need. You telling me you're sorry, you telling me you love me, that helps me, and for you to point me to the perfect one who will never fail me is what I need from you. Thank you. Look to Christ. It's not a cliche. It's not some trite saying. It's your only hope. Look to Christ, right? Because he will never leave you or forsake you. That's in his word. He's promised that. He is near to you always, especially in times of heartache. God is near to the broken heart. Christ, the day that you trusted him and the day that you die or he returns, is your righteousness. Look to him. He is your only hope in life and death. Look to him. Your standing before God is secure in Christ because he is perfect and because he never changes. You change all the time. He doesn't. And he never fails. That blows my mind. As a guy who hates to fail, the fact that Jesus has never failed is awesome to me. I leave you with this. Trust Christ. Why? Put yourself in the words of the hymn writer. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine. The resting place. His truth, not mine. The tide. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would show grace to us even now. That as we have thought about your forgiveness and your mercy, your redemption, as we have thought about what Jesus has done for us, we pray that that would not just kind of wash over us as something ordinary. We pray that it wouldn't be this thing that we believe is true that we just heard for the 500th time, but that we would be gripped by it. 
We know that if we're going to be gripped by the gospel and even by this great exchange, Christ takes our sin, we get his righteousness. If we're going to be gripped by that, you've got to produce that, God, we pray you would. We want to live lives that honor you and please you, and we know that we cannot please you apart from faith in your Son. And we pray that we would be filled with gratitude to you. We pray that we would live humbly before you and that we would live in all of you for who you are and what you've done. We pray that you would minister to us now by your spirit as we come to the table. We pray that you would strengthen and sustain our faith in the Lord Jesus as we come together to remember and to proclaim and to celebrate what he has accomplished. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.